We've been continuing in our study in the Exodus. We come this morning to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. And our complementary passage is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. So if you place your bulletin or your bulletin insert in your Bibles in Exodus 20, open them to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, and in honor of God's Word, please stand. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, beginning in verse 34, hear God's word. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1 and continuing in the reading of God's word. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. As far in the reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, as we have read, we come to the preaching and the hearing of your word, and we pray that you would open our eyes, break the stubborn heart, bring to life the dead, Encourage the feeble, strengthen the lame, heal the sick. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So as I mentioned last week, there's obviously a whole bunch of different ways that we could approach this passage, the law. There are excellent sermons that are written or preached, whatever, on the Ten Commandments. John Calvin uh, has an entire very thick book, Sermons on the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, and so while all of these things are very beneficial, uh, that's not the route that I want to take. I don't want to get very detailed into the Ten Commandments. I will say... You can find plenty of good sermons to listen to online. Uh, you can also utilize the larger catechism or the shorter catechism. It's found in the back of your hymn book. It's a very helpful tool uh, in terms of helping us to understand how God's law impacts every area of our life. So, so those are all excellent avenues of, of approach to this. 
what I'm trying to do when I preach expositorily through the Scriptures, what I'm trying to do is give you sort of a big picture sense of, of the overarching narrative that the Scriptures, that the particulars are, are detailing for us here. So I hope, I hope that'll make more sense as we go forward. But I want to look at this passage this morning in two ways. One is some observations about the law itself. Some observations about the law. And then secondly, some observations about these first four commandments. Now, so the law uh, itself. From early on in the church's history, the Roman Catholic Church understood ethics. Now, ethics is what's right and what's wrong, what's ethical. Uh, we, we, we still have ethics boards, you know, uh, hospitals and, and things like that, have, have people who serve as ethicists uh, because they want to step in and get advice on what is a moral thing to do. Uh, and so they ask an ethicist uh, or a panel of ethicists to, to give them direction on whether this is a good thing or a bad thing that they should do. What's wisdom? What's right? What's wrong? That's ethics. And the Roman Catholic Church used the Greek system. The Greek system of ethics developed by Aristotle is the graces, or I'm sorry, the virtues and the vices. And so if you're familiar, uh, there, there there was a conservative writer a few years ago maybe a couple of decades ago, uh, William Bennett, uh, that wrote the Children's Book of Virtues. And, and his idea was that we needed to recapture this Greek understanding of the citizen as virtuous and what virtue looks like. And so the, the Book of Virtues that William Bennett published was an attempt to kind of modernize the, the understanding of the virtues and the vices as this system of ethics, uh, how we know what is right and what is wrong. And it's a helpful system. Uh, one of the books that uh, I've taken my family through uh, when the children are a bit older and we did family worship more, uh, more, more independently, uh, I took them through, uh, I forgot the name of the author. Anyway, the title of the book is Glittering Vices. And it's, it's a fresh way of looking at these virtues and vices. So the Reformation comes along. Reform theology comes into play, and everything goes up in the air. Uh, we're, we're debating, you know, what does the scriptural model for the church look like? What does church government look like? What is theology? We're, we're, we're just re-examining everything in the light of the sola scriptura, scripture alone is our standard. And so one of the things that the Reformation does is it changes our system of ethics. So if you have grown up in a Protestant church, you kind of know in the back of your head about the virtues and the vices, but you haven't really heard it preached from a pulpit before. If you've grown up in a Roman Catholic church, you may well have heard the virtues and the vices as as kind of the big thing uh, that's being held in front of you. 
But in a Reformed church, they said, let's redo how we understand ethics and connect it to the Ten Commandments. And so if you look through the larger catechism, if you look through the larger and shorter catechism, then you'll see that every single precept that is found, positively or negatively, anywhere in the Bible, they will connect to one of the Ten Commandments. And so their understanding is that the Ten Commandments are the perfect summary of God's law and that they cover all the other commands that are in Scripture. So if you, and, and so an example of this would be when Jesus says, you have heard it say, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. You have heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you are a murderer. So can you read the Ten Commandments as they are and say, oh yeah, no, lust is clearly out? Well, no, not if you're going to be literalistic and wooden, then I'm free to do anything I want in that arena, as long as I don't lay my hand on somebody. As long as I don't lay my hand on somebody, I can say, hey, no Seventh Commandment violations for me. And Jesus says, no, you moron. This was always talking about the heart. It's always about your heart needs to be mine. And and so this is how we structure our understanding of God's will and God's wisdom for us, is the Ten Commandments are the overarching narrative from which hangs all the other commands in Scripture. Now, the Ten Commandments themselves are summarized. That's what we read in Matthew chapter 22. The greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, uh, uh, heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So where do we see that? It's not one of the Ten Commandments, is it? As you read through the Ten Commandments, do you read, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart? No, you don't. What you read is Commandments 1 through 4 very clearly tell us what love for God looks like. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image and bow down to it. You shall not take my name in vain. You shall remember my Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then it tells us what love for neighbor looks like. You shall honor your father and your mother. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not uh, steal. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. That's how you and I love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So these Ten Commandments really are broken nicely into two sections. Love for God and love for neighbor. And so that's really what we're going to focus on this morning, is that love for God. These first four commandments, and the love for God that they instill within us. Now, as you recall, last week we pointed out this narrative of the law. It takes place at Mount Sinai. And that's an important detail. Because this This entire narrative begins in Exodus chapter 19 
with God calling the children of Israel to himself. I bore you up on wings of eagles. I, I, I drew you unto myself. It also establishes that he is holy and cannot be approached casually. If so much as a beast touches the mountain, they are to be stoned. So this holy God enters into a bridal relationship. Later, the prophets Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, Ezekiel, those prophets all refer to Israel's sin as adultery. And so one of the realities is that in order to commit adultery, you got to first be married. So where is the marriage? Well, the later prophets point to this event, this Sinai covenant as the marriage. This is a marriage contract. And that marriage contract is particularly the Ten Commandments. But remember, Sinai and this this Sinaitic covenant, this covenant that is made at Sinai, begins in Exodus chapter 19, and it concludes in Numbers chapter 10. So the rest of Exodus, the entire book of Leviticus, and the first nine chapters of Numbers are all right here at Sinai. It's not until Numbers chapter 10 verse 14 that the children of Israel now pack up and leave and start their wilderness wandering. So this entire thing, this entire thing is this covenant that God makes with the people at Sinai. And it begins with his affirmation of love. His love for his people. And standing here at the altar with God... He says to the bride, and you should love me. That's all this is. You want to boil God's law down to its absolute refined essence. The first four commandments are God saying, I love you so much that I destroyed Pharaoh. I destroyed all the Egyptian gods. I drowned Pharaoh and his army in the sea. I brought you and sustained you in the wilderness. I provided water from a rock. I, you cried out that you were hungry. And I gave you food from heaven that litters the earth so that you can eat this manna, this foretaste of the supper that you're looking forward to. I brought you out. I've sustained you. I've protected you. I love you. And I want you to love me. It's a marriage. It's a marriage contract. And I think, beloved, if you get that through your heads, you have the answer to probably half of the books in my library. Because <laughs> there is nothing that gets people more wound up and a variety of different opinions than what is the relationship of the law to the Christian, are we under the law? Is the law evil? Or should we just say, no more law, we're under grace? Should, should we abandon the law? What is the relationship of the Christian to God's law? I think all of those things are obviously worthwhile books, and they help clarify and yada yada. But at the end of the day, if we just start where God starts... This is a marriage. 
It's the bridegroom saying to the bride, I love you and I want you to love me. Then I think that completely changes the way that we engage this overall debate. Now, I mentioned our larger and shorter catechisms use God's law as the basis of our ethics. In fact, from larger catechism question 99 all the way to, I believe it's 158, that's the section on God's law. So roughly a third of our entire system of theology, a third of it is the exposition of the law of God. And it starts in question 99 by saying, what are the uses of God's law? And it lists eight uses. Eight uses. And I just want to mention two of these uses of God's law. Again, I would encourage you, look at the larger catechism. It's a very helpful uh, tool for examination, for for, uh, guiding in terms of how we can best obey God. But it gives two rules. The first is that the law is perfect and it is complete. The number 10 is the number throughout Scripture of completion. The fact that it is written in stone is an indication that it is permanent. It fits all people, all ages, all contexts, all situations. I don't care what your culture is. I don't care what your background is. You shall not commit adultery. I don't care. (laughs) I don't care if you come out of a culture in which marriage vows are taken casually and blah, blah, blah. God says don't do it. And he says don't do it for everybody, everywhere, all the time. And the same with all of these other commands that he gives to us. They're carved in stone to indicate their permanence. The second thing that our catechism points out there in question 99 is that you and I must remember that the law from its beginning was always spiritual. And that means it always was aimed at the heart. The law was never... That's where the Pharisees got it wrong. The Pharisees thought the law is something that's a list of do's and don'ts. And as long as I follow every jot and every tittle, and and if you're familiar with that language, it it comes from the Hebrew and it refers to vowel pointings, the tiniest little vowel pointings that are in a word. These The tiniest details, as long as I'm following every one of the details, then I'm right with God. And Jesus says that never was the point of the law. It wasn't about how do you become a bride. It was about, bride, how do you love me? How, what are the ways in which you can show your love for me? So that's what the law always was given for. And now let's zero in very quickly for a few minutes on these first, we'll just look at the first three commandments very briefly this morning. Matthew Henry, the, the uh, great commentator, uh, you know, Matthew Henry's commentary on the whole Bible, uh, if you're familiar with that, he's, he's a, 
a really good, solid commentator from from fair amount of, of time ago. But Matthew Henry says, you and I cannot love our neighbor aright unless we love God aright. And I think that's a profound insight, and I think it's very, very uh, relevant to our situation today, our culture in which we live. I, I've appreciated, you know, the the various horrible, horrible, wicked acts that have been taking place. Uh, seems like just with horrible regularity of these of these shootings in in or the horrible running through the Christmas parade in Waukesha and the the horrible shooting that took place in Buffalo, the horrible uh, shooting that took place in Texas, these these horrible evil things that happen. One of the things that I've noticed, and and this isn't a new insight, I've seen it before, but it's just struck me with with regularity uh, or with greater force more recently, is the way in which we engage these horrible, horrible events is always to try to find sense in it. To try to find a reason for it. The reason may be online radicalization, or the reason may be too easy access to too high-powered weapons. But, But we're always recognizing that this is a mess. This is wrong. And there's got to be a reason for it. Why do these things happen? And I think that's stating a a basic creation truth negatively. But certainly in our current culture, and our desire to see greater justice, and, and the question of is there systemic racism? Is there, you know, are there systems? that are set up, that that by their nature oppress, and, and that sort of stuff, we're recognizing that we want a righteous society. We want a good society. I want a society where idiots and evil people don't shoot each other dead. I want a society in which my children can go to elementary school and learn to color, not duck under a chair. I want a society that is good. I want a society where I'm not putting another person down because of the color of their skin or because of their sex or even sexual orientation. I'm not denying them a a job opportunities or whatever. I want a just society. And I think we all do. But Matthew Henry's point is, that I can't get this right if I don't have this right. If I don't understand that this is God's world, that God created, that God is the one who has the right to say, do this, don't do that. And if I'm not walking in harmony with God's world, then I'm not walking in harmony with God's world. (laughs) The first... Three commands in particular show us what this love for God looks like. 
I think it speaks. It, it, it should shock you. It should shock you. What the first commandment is. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. We all know that, right? That's not news to anybody in this room. Two months ago, God destroyed the Egyptians. In the last two months, from the crossing of the Red Sea, He has provided food for them every single morning. When they ran a little low on water, He had Moses whack a rock in the middle of nowhere and water gushed out. When the Amalekites came and attacked them from the rear, he had Moses hold his hands up, and as long as his hands were in the air, then Joshua and his men prevailed. And when Moses' hands dropped, Joshua and his men had to fall back. God has provided and protected and clearly demonstrated his awesome control over everything in the universe, including the most powerful empire of his day. And what's the first thing he's got to tell them? (laughs) Hey, hey, no other gods but me. That is insane. It is insane that they would need that command. It is unthinkable. Or is it? Do you and I need that command? Do you and I, who God has provided for, God has cared for, you and I, who God has clothed, you and I, who Christ Jesus says, listen, look at the lilies of the field. They don't, they don't toil, they don't spin. I tell you, Solomon in all his glory wasn't dressed as beautifully as these flowers that are in your flower bed. Do you not think that your father loves you more than those flowers? Oh, you of little faith. You see, God recognizes our weakness. He recognizes just how stupid we are. And he says, I love you. You're my bride. The second commandment. You shall not make any physical representation. God is a spirit. Jesus will say to the woman at the well, He's a spirit and they who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And I'm not going to touch on this now, partially for time, but partially because I want to get into it further later. But I want you to notice this very clear command not to have any visual representation of God and the structure of from here to Numbers 19 is all alternating with laws from God and an appearance of God. There's an appearance that happens right after the Ten Commandments. God is thick darkness. Later there's going to be another appearance. His feet standing on sapphire. Then there's going to be another appearance. His hand covering Moses in the cleft of the rock. His back being displayed to Moses. Then there's going to be another appearance of the glory, the Shekinah glory, the cloud 
descending upon the tabernacle. There's no physical representation of God. And at the same time, there's physical representation of God. That's a plug for coming back next time. We'll explore that a little bit. I just find that fascinating. I find it fascinating that that these two things coexist. I will say this, so that I don't completely leave you. John takes up this theme in his gospel. And in John chapter 1, he says that Jesus Christ is the very appearance of God. He is the perfect appearing of God. And then that third commandment. The third commandment, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now as a kid, I grew up in a Christian home. As a kid, I thought that meant don't cuss. That was taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. And our big debates were, does the word gosh darn count as something a Christian can say? Because we all know what gosh darn is a Christianized version of. And so if that's taking the name of the Lord your God in vain, should you take, you know, should you say... That was our big debate. Let's look at the principle. The principle, and this is what Jesus says when he says, you've heard it say, don't swear by the gold on the temple. Uh, he says, don't, don't swear by anything at all. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Here's the principle that the third commandment is getting at, and that is, beloved, God is not your tool to get what you want. That was taking his name in vain. I swear by God that I am going to do this because you just want to do it or you just want permission to do it. I mean, I, I give you, I give you an example, a marriage vow. You stood, if you are married, you stood before God and witnesses and said until death. And yet how many marriages do we see where, no, it was the boy wanting something. It was the girl wanting to change the boy because he was a scumbag from the beginning. And in a real sense, we're kind of taking the Lord's name in vain. When we're using these things that God gives to acquire simply the things that we want. And as we look at these principles, as we look at these overarching principles, then beloved, I hope you can see that you and I don't keep any of them. You and I can't keep a one. There are other things in my life that are, sadly, many times, more important than God. There are things in my life I'm more embarrassed about God and my relationship to Him than I am about my social media friends or whatever. I, I, I use my position as a pastor or my position as a Christian to manipulate and achieve power 
empires. I mean, my goodness, how many people do that? How many pastors have we read about in the news just recently that, that have used what is a horrible, heavy burden? Joyful, yes, but heavy. To, to get stuff, to get acclaim. How many Christians do this? How often do we assault our fellow human being who is made in His image? The one who bears the image of God is the very one that we attack. Beloved, these things should not be. But they do point us to a Savior. They point us to that one who is the law keeper. They point us to the one who has united us to himself. And so as we develop this a bit more in coming weeks, as we look at God's law, as we look at our relationship to the God's law, beloved, I want to leave you with this. As you read the commands, I hope that you can see that you can't do it. And I hope that you can see that God says you better do it. And if you see that you can't, and if you see that God says you better, then it should drive you to someone who has done it for you. It should drive you to a Savior who has borne the curse of the law on the cross, who has fulfilled the law perfectly in his life and who now invites you to come under the shadow of his wings to be his child so that you with David can later say how you love his law. But right now, just me standing before God, I look at this and I power, I tremble. Fearful and rightly so. But beloved, that fear doesn't have to be your story. That fear doesn't have to be your life. Remember what Isaiah said about the church? He said they're rejoicing. And why do we rejoice? Because we now can stand here and cry out, Abba, Father. We have a Savior who is purchased us. And so, beloved, let's see God's law for what it is. Let's love God as He presents Himself in His law. And let's look to Christ for our righteousness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this clear vision of Your face. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see our beautiful Savior with arms wide open, saying, come to me, you who are heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.